Well, it shouldn't come as a, uh, a shock to us, or for me to say, to tell you, that uh, we're living in a society that's becoming more and more post-Christian, uh, even by the day. Each generation uh, seemingly is becoming less, uh, less religious. This is seen by the fact that uh, more than two-thirds of the churches in the United States have either plateaued or are declining. And the church's role in society has, uh, has gone from being kind of central some decades ago to being maybe peripheral at best. Uh, this is uh, noted in uh, Tim Keller's book, uh, How to Reach the West Again. He said the following. He said, while religion was, was broadly seen as a social good, or at least benign, increasing numbers of people now see the church as bad for people and a major obstacle to social progress. Now, all that is, has not stopped every human being, though, from seeking uh, to fill the void that is in their soul. They're still seeking Still looking, while church attendance and professed adherence to Christianity has declined in our culture, the drive to want to be satisfied, the, the desire to find hope and meaning, uh, and in essence really to find God, though that's not how they would characterize that, has only increased. Why is that? Because each human being, as we open up the Bible and begin right in Genesis, each human being is made in what? The image of God. Right? And they, we can't escape the inevitable search, <laughs> though we may not call it God, we can't escape the inevitable search to find what it is we were created for. Uh, one of my favorite writers, as you know, C.S. Lewis, which I get made fun of a lot for saying him, I'll bring him up a lot, but hey, I'm bringing him up again. He put it this way, the sense that in the universe we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of our inconsolable secret. I love how he puts that. Inconsolable secret. Every human being has that. Every human being has a search, has a desire to be connected back to the creator, though they may not, again, formulate it in those words. Look at how Paul, later on in the book of Acts, in Acts 17, he goes into a city, the city of Athens, and he interacts with people there who have this very thing going on. Listen to how he puts it. Acts 17, starting at verse 22. He says, men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. So we could say, while we could say our society is becoming more irreligious, it's actually just as accurate to say it's becoming even more religious. Again, it's just that the religious search looks very different than it did traditionally in America. And here's the thing. When this is the case, when this is the, what's happening in the culture, Satan knows this about human nature, right? He has studied it for centuries, so it shouldn't surprise us that of the rise of not just false religions or what we would call cults, but the rise of what I would call counterfeit Jesuses. Do you know they, they exist? There's a lot of counterfeit Jesuses out there. Uh, Satan is in the business of producing counterfeit saviors, right? Things being pushed in society and in mainstream of ideas of how I can be saved. Again, there may not be the idea that we would use that language, but the idea of being delivered. 
both secular and religious ones, to lure people away from the real Jesus of the Bible. And here's probably the most deceitful ploy of it all. The taking of just a little bit, and this is the danger, and this is what we find, taking just a little bit of the, the, the real Jesus of the Bible and blending it with other religions or, um, or a pop thought uh, to make, as uh, Johnny Cash once said, our own personal Jesus, right? We're, we're really good at that. As someone once said, in the beginning, it says God made man in his image, and today we're just returning the favor, right? We're just crafting God and Jesus how we want him to be. So we take a little bit of piece of what we find there. And so we take that. People take what they like from Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. They mix in a little bit of another religion or philosophy, sprinkle that with a little bit of uh, whatever, give them social relevance and political power, let that bake for 30 minutes, and then voila, you have your Savior, Right? You have your deliverer. You have your own personal Jesus. And so we find that, uh, let me give you some examples, all right? And you say, what, counterfeit Jesus, what, what do they look like? Well, I can give you a few of them, even in our own very culture here in the Midwest. Here's a few of them. One I'll call the, uh, the morality Jesus. This is uh, the Jesus that helps, you, helps keep you a good, moral, and upstanding citizen, uh, many times by use of fear, also assuaging your guilt for attending church and doing good works, right? That's the morality Jesus. There's the political Jesus that's out there, helps keep your political party and agendas in office, helps usher in the kingdom of God in America. This is done by both, by the way, the left and the right, who drop the name of Jesus to support their causes. You ever seen this? It happens all the time, right? Uh, here's one. Uh, I call mealtime Jesus, also known as bedtime Jesus. Uh, this helps uh, keep you healthy, uh, I guess, as you eat, and safe as you sleep uh, by the offering of rope prayers that become the only time you ever mention his name because you have to do it because it's before you eat or before you go to bed. Uh, Country Club Jesus is another one. He uh, helps keep you and your friends, especially your church, favored and blessed with wealth and prosperity and comfort uh, as you hide behind the four walls of a church building. Uh, Affirmation Jesus is another one. Helps keep you happy and agrees with all your decisions. I see this one all the time. This Jesus agrees with all your decisions, affirms all of your desires, because after all, God wants you to be happy, right? You heard this, this Jesus? He just kind of, I, I make my decisions in life based on the fact that God wants me to be happy. Uh, State Farm Jesus, my personal favorites. Like a good neighbor, Jesus is there when you need him, right? He's there to bail you out uh, when your personal sovereignty is threatened, when you can't do it anymore and you've got it all worked out and something happens where you can't deal with life anymore, hey, there's this Jesus you can reach out to that is there to help you. And then finally, uh, there's, uh, and there's lots of these, but this is the final one I have here, uh, motivational Jesus. He helps you win at anything in life, whether it be sports, games, or landing that job. He's always there in the corner rooting you on, uh, helping you achieve greatness, right? The motivational Jesus. These are, there's lots of them out there. That, are, that has pieces, all right, of, of the Jesus of the Bible, but it's not actually the Jesus of the Bible. And this is not new. The culture in which we find ourselves here in Acts 8, the, church, the early church did, uh, is not any different than ours. Uh, what was going on in the Roman world there was very similar to what's going on today. Uh, in, in their culture, the belief in the old gods of traditional Roman and Greek religions were in decline. And because of increasing mobility, uh, individualistic approaches to religion and kind of crafting your own were replacing the more corporate ones. Mystery religions were popping up all over the Roman Empire, uh, and Christianity would soon, uh, would soon make its way into that and would spread, and so would these counterfeits would spread as well. And so today, as the, as the gospel goes forward, we need to be aware uh, that Satan is producing new counterfeit Jesuses all over the place, seemingly every day, to meet whatever need, whatever perceived need people may have. 
And just because people claim to believe uh, and follow the Jesus of the, uh, who claim to follow Jesus or use the name of Jesus, doesn't mean that they're following the Jesus of the Bible. Okay, you need to understand that. Um, who said, the, you know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Um, so as we talk about being a church on mission, which is our banners here, which has been our series in the book of Acts, we need to talk about having discernment. We need to talk about watching out for these subtle cultural and religious idols and movements that are being used to supplant the very gospel message. So let's look at these counterfeits in Acts 8 and only be equipped to spot it in our culture but also to be able to spot the seeds of these counterfeits in our own heart because we have to be careful that we ourselves don't fall prey to crafting our own kind of personal Jesus for our own means and ends. So here's what we'll see. We're going to see the conditions for counterfeits, the cause of counterfeits, and finally, uh, the call to counterfeits. All right, number one, conditions for counterfeits. All right, here we see the, uh, when the gospel goes forward and people are starving for truth, that this is the exact place where Satan kind of produces his counterfeit. So look at uh, verse 1. We find here that Saul approved of his execution, it says, and there arose that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So we find Saul, all right? If you remember from Justin preaching on um, Acts 7, uh, or a lot of part of 6 and 7, you ran into Stephen, and you remember Stephen got stoned, he got killed, and the guy who was actually overseeing all of that, his name is Saul. We're going to see a lot of him, by the way, as this book goes on. You're going to see some pretty amazing stories with him. But he was basically what we could call um, kind of like uh, Judaism's hitman, okay? He was, he was the guy who did the dirty work. He was proud of it. Uh, he was actually very arrogant and presumptuous based on his own personal testimony, which you can read about in the book of uh, Philippians. And though he, uh, he thought he kept the entire law, and he was zealous to make sure everyone else kept the entire law and followed Judaism, if anybody deterred from that or tried to change that, he was after them. So here we find him nodding his head in agreement to the killing of Stephen. And after Stephen kind of breathed his last, he got all of his henchmen together, basically, sent them out to round up any other of these followers of Jesus and basically do the same to them. And Saul, it says here, was literally trying to destroy the church. The word drag here was used of, what, uh, of a wild animal mangling a body in the gladiatorial games. Okay, that's what they would do. And that, that was the image of what the word is being used to describe Paul or Saul, sorry. Later, be, that's a, that was a spoiler alert there. He'll be called Paul later. Okay. Uh, Saul, um, he, was, uh, he was dragging and, and, and dragging these families and people out. He dragged them out of their homes. He put them into prisons to die. Uh, some, they'd be executed many times after that. And these prisons, by the way, weren't, they weren't posh at all. They were basically sewer holes where they were chained to the ground. And the result of all this were the Christians just running for their lives. And just the apostles, it says here in the text, stayed back at, at the Jerusalem church, which, by the way, was the really only church yet. Okay, there'll be more of them as Acts goes on and more churches pop up in different cities. Um, and so they, um, but it's all about the change. Here we find three waves here. We have Stephen's death caused persecution. Persecution caused all except the apostles to scatter. And the scattering caused them to preach the gospel wherever they went. So really, the ironic part here is those who wanted to snuff out the flame of the gospel only served to be kind of gasoline to actually make it spread. It actually just spread it even, spread even further. It all started with Stephen and his faithfulness, Right? God took this, this destructive, kind of horrible situation of him being stoned and used it to propel the gospel to go forward. As a matter of fact, 
many commentators and those who kind of write on um, the, the Bible and different things and have books on that uh, would, would argue that, that probably without the, it's very possible, without the death of Stephen and the subsequent persecution, the church may have never left Jerusalem. <laughs> they may have never gotten out because, you know how it is, it gets comfortable, right? I mean, this is like, this is us and we're good and we don't really need to go and all of a sudden persecution comes and they have to run for their lives. I mean, you can see this history in, in the country of China, exactly what happened. Persecution came and Christianity exploded because people were scattered all over the place. And so they were scattered. They were scattered out. And you notice in the text, they were scattered out of Jerusalem and they were sent into Judea and Samaria. If you've been following along in Acts, that sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? Listen to what Jesus said they would do. Acts 1.8. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And where? All Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. They're going exactly where Jesus wanted them to go, even if they didn't want to go, right? They're being persecuted, and they're having to run to the places he sent them. Now look at verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. I love this. You might think that the Christians would scatter and take cover and hide, right? That would be the, maybe the prudent thing to do, all right? We're, we're, we're running for our lives. We don't want people to know we're Christians because we might die. They didn't do that. They ran, but they went, and they preached the gospel when they went. Uh, they were not just being persecuted. They were being sent, Matter of fact, the word scatter here, uh, there's two different words in the original language here for the word scatter. One is to scatter kind of haphazardly, such a way, um, imagine if you dropped a plate off the counter, glass plate, hits the ground, you know, and just shatters in like a million pieces. That's one idea of scatter. Um, it's like an accident, and it kind of goes everywhere. Another word that's used, the same word that's used in a different way in the original language, in this word, is to scatter purposefully, okay, like seeds, like a farmer will plant seeds very deliberately, you know, and very, they're just randomly scattered, then they put them right in the, space them out in the right space. That's the word used here. The church was deliberately scattered, purposefully scattered by God to these very different locations. And so we find the early church viewed their, their persecution, their struggle, their relationships, uh, their location, even if they didn't like their location or reasons, as an opportunity to build relationships and talk about Jesus. This is the way the early church spread. You know, I mean, think about that. That's, that's applicable to us, right? God has placed you in, those, in that home, in that neighborhood, in that place of employment, or wherever those places are that God has placed you, there is a purposeful scattering there. There's a purposeful planting in those locations. And that's how the early church grew, right? Um, Kenneth uh, Latourette, uh, writing on church history, he said this, the chief agents in the expansion of Christianity appear not to have been those who made it a profession, but men and women who carried on their livelihood in some purely secular manner and spoke of their faith to those they met in this natural fashion. That's when you study Christianity and the history of it, you find that's how it grew. That's how it's always grown, not by those who make it a, a profession. So the result of this mindset and the result of this missionary posture was that the early church faced opposition and Satan made it difficult by producing lots of false religions and cults and counterfeit Jesus in these places. If you've read much of the New Testament, uh, you'll find something interesting in the New Testament, these letters. You'll find a lot of references to false teachers and um, beware of false teaching, you know, if you see, read the other letters in the New Testament. And the reason that's there, when the church is on mission, they need to watch out for this, right? When you're out, it's especially true here, where we live. Uh, as many people claim to be Christians, but many times it may be following counterfeit Jesuses. We have to spend time finding out if they're actually following the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus of the culture. So look what happens. Verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria. He proclaimed to them Christ. 
So Philip has come up before, back in Acts 6. He's, uh, he was that deacon servant guy. He was one of those early, well, who was serving the widows back in Acts chapter 6, like Stephen. And so he looked at his scattering again as an opportunity to talk about Jesus, and he went to Samaria. And they were, that was interesting, because Samaria was really hated by the Jews. Okay? They, they despised them. You can go read John 4, and you'll find Jesus going to Samaria, and uh, the disciples didn't want him to go. Um, to, to that spot. They called them kind of half-breeds or dogs in many ways because they were, they were half-Jewish, but then they, they married other people of other different races, and that's how they viewed them. And so, um, so Philip went right into the heart of the area, this major city, and he talked about Jesus. And as a result, he came across kind of false religions and counterfeit Jesuses and counterfeit saviors they proclaimed and believed in. Look at verse 6. Crowds of one accord paid attention to what he said. He did signs, it says. Unclean spirits came out. Uh, people, uh, verse 8 says, there was much joy in that city. And so we find that the people were ready, right? The people were searching, the people were wanting uh, truth. We find the same group of people in uh, John 4, where Jesus said that the fields were white for harvest, and it surely was. And so they came out in droves. They, they listened to Philip. Philip did not just word ministry, but deed ministry, right? That two wings of the plane we talked about. He proclaimed Jesus, and he served people at the same time. And it's in this setting, in this situation, uh, that Philip finds himself as the perfect condition to have, see, false teaching and false religions and counterfeit saviors to be thriving. They thrive in the kind of environment where people are seeking, but there's no truth. There's no real Jesus. And when the church goes silent or there's no gospel witness, we see Satan fill that silence, that void, with all kinds of counterfeits. And the early church is going to keep finding these. As Acts rolls on, this is going to continue to find different ideas about God and, 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 uh, and even Jesus as the, as the book of Acts rolls on. And so as we push out of our comfort zone and engage the culture around us, we're going to find lots of false ideas, false teachings, false religions, even the counterfeit kind of Jesuses. So look at number two. What's the cause of these? We're going to find this guy named Simon here, starting in verse 9. And so we find, um, we find Simon actually uh, comes, out, uh, comes to Jesus, it seems like, but he really comes to a Jesus of his own making, as we'll see. It wasn't the Jesus of the Bible. He wanted to use Jesus, right? He wanted to use him for his own personal gain. He just wants his own personal Jesus to use as a power grab and applause, and he wants to gain the crowds again. We'll see in the text repeated how, how the people applauded him, and the people loved to hear him, and how he was thought to be great, and people thought he was great. And then the apostles come along, and they preach the gospel, and the people turn to them, and Simon's like, he seems to convert and join them, but really he just wants the, the crowd back. He wants the applause back that he had before. So look at verse 9. Here's this guy named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Now, in this, this world, this Roman world, uh, magic, when it's used here, talking about magic, you say, what is that? Uh, was, was focused on kind of uh, manipulation of uh, supernatural forces sometimes for the benefit of the individual or for the harm of their enemies. In this culture, magic produced, uh, promised, uh, they promised control over the uncontrollable, things like romance or birth or illness or death or business and travel. Uh, these magicians would claim to have an in with the gods. And they could manipulate them and use them to expel demons or heal diseases or warm the heart of a reluctant lover or bring misfortune on a political rival or ward off storms at sea and enable a wife to conceive, right? And they, all these different promises they would make to fill a void, right, that people wanted. And so like astrology, in many ways, magic also offered proposed insights into the future. 
And so you notice that these magicians, they prayed on the desires and wishes of the human heart, right? They promised success or happiness and purpose and health, even power and insight. And we find similar substitutes for Jesus in our culture, right? You can find a lot of this in the self-help section of the bookstores, right? You can find it in pulpits promising blessing and health and prosperity for financial donations. I mean, it's the same kind of stuff going on today. And notice here that the text is interesting. It gives us a little insight on Simon. He thought he was somebody great. <laughs> he thought. This is a false teachers always think they are someone great because they've discovered the secret, right? They've uncovered the mysteries of the world. They claim to be able to deliver, um, and here's how this works. They claim to be able to deliver from whatever hell, I'll put in quotes, you find yourself in, right? I want to get out of this situation that I'm in. How can I, what, what savior can you give me to deliver me out of the situation? So we, this is, uh, this is why, why I've said there are many counterfeit Jesus, counterfeit saviors in our culture, right? Just think about it. Just, just look at the front cover of magazines uh, in the checkout aisles of the grocery store. Sometimes don't, actually. But if you look at the front covers of those, um, you'll, you'll, see them, you'll see this kind of theme plastered everywhere. If you just look closely, you'll see religion plastered everywhere, but just not using the typical phrases we'd use. There are saviors, there are hells, there are heavens, right? There's a way to deliver you out of something into something great, and they've got the mechanism for you. You'll see saviors like plans and regiments and recipes and people to deliver you from the hell of loneliness and illness and sadness and flabbiness, right? There's all kinds of deliverers and saviors out there to get you into wherever you need to get. Or notice, you can notice the blue-checked uh, verified status of many of these on TikTok or Twitter. Uh, they promise to give you what you dream of, be it more attention, be it greater success, or just escape from the madness. And so there's counterfeit saviors everywhere, right? Uh, the calling card of all of that is pride, uh, as the proponent of all of them. Pride was Simon's downfall. And it's really the core. It never changed. His heart never changed from this. Uh, it's universal and a deadly sin. It cost, if you think about the Bible, it cost humanity Eden. It cost fallen angels heaven. It cost Nebuchadnezzar his reason, Rehoboam his kingdom, Uzziah his health, and Haman his life. I mean, it's the theme throughout the Bible. You say, what is pride? Well, in essence, it's just a heart set on its own kingdom. It's a person consumed with their own greatness instead of the greatness of God. It's a person trying to live really a man-centered, works-focused, give-take, transaction-based relationship with God. Um, it's a heart looking to use Jesus for their own personal gain. And as Christians, we have to be careful of falling into the same thought, right? We don't use God. <laughs> it's not how it works. A prideful man or woman takes credit for what they have, what they have accomplished, who they've become, a prideful man or woman sees themselves as the source of any good that comes their way that's not uh, but instead of God. A prideful man or woman has an agenda. They want God to follow and bless, right? Here is my agenda. Here's what I want. I need you to follow this. I'll do what you need me to do as long as you give me what I need. Uh, a prideful man or woman believes God owes them something. This makes the heart of pride really, in essence, a rejection of the grace of God, a refusal of the grace of God. Because what's the grace of God? Unmerited favor, right? It's unmerited. I can't earn it. So pride says, no, I, I need to earn something. I, I, I need to gain something. It's a belief that God owes us something. John Stott uh, put it this way. He said, look, at, at every stage of our Christian development, so as we grow, and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. So how does this pop up in life? Well, we can see it uh, when we're upset at God for not doing what we feel like he should do for us. 
That's pride, right? We get mad at God because he didn't do for us what he thought he should do. Um, we see it when we don't get what we think we deserve. We see it also in how we negatively view other people to make ourselves feel better, right? That's also pride. You know, do you see the, the grace uh, in people's life or do you only see the problems? Do you only complain of what is not there? You know, what about the, the church, your spouse, your, your roommate? Do you only see the need to change, right? Need to change and growth, and, or do you see evidences of grace in their life? Pride blinds us to seeing grace, and it prides us to seeing grace of God in the life of other people, right? That's where pride is coming from. It's blindness to that. So look at verse 12. So we find this pride uh, in Philip, I'm sorry, not in Philip, in, uh, in Simon. Verse 12, when they had uh, believed Philip, he, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God, they were baptized, both men and women. So in steps Philip into this lost city, right, full of arrogance and pride, and they're searching, um, people longing for something true, something real, something transformational, and he gives them Jesus. And this power has, uh, of, of Simon has no match for the might of the message of the gospel for the power of grace. So verse 13, Simon himself believed and was baptized and seen signs and great miracles performed. He was amazed. So here we find something that seems amazing. Simon, the, the kind of false teacher guy, uh, the proponent of these pseudo-saviors, these pseudo-deliverers, looks to be converted. But if you look down at verse 21 in the text, you begin to find that actually he was never converted in the first place. You know, verse 21, you have neither part nor, in, uh, or nor a lot in this manner. Your heart is not right with God. Right? There was, his heart never changed. He never was truly Converted. He may have said the language, he may have had a, you know, a moment, he got baptized or whatever, but his heart never changed. He was intellectually maybe convinced of the truth, but there was no real heart change, no new birth. You see, he just wanted, again, he just wanted to use Jesus for his own gain. And so he just takes the pieces of Jesus that he likes that will advance his agenda and creates his own Jesus. And so he's, again, we find this prize at the root of his heart because he doesn't see or feel grace. It's like people today who want to use Jesus, right? For their, they use Jesus to get power, use Jesus to get control or applause. Look what happens. Verse 14, the apostles of the Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God and they sent Peter and John. John, they come down here. So this little section, this is a little side note here. This is the hard part about preaching Acts. It's like all these little parenthetical little comments and we can't just skip over this and go, Wait a minute, they didn't get the Holy Spirit, and Peter and Paul gave it to them. Like, what's going on in this text? Um, I mean, Peter stated pretty clearly back in Acts 2, the Spirit comes when, with regeneration. When you come to know Jesus, you receive the Spirit. There are no second blessings or, you know, space in between those things. So what's going on here? And this is, you got to remember, Acts is, a, is, a, is like a bridge taking, taking from, from the, the, the life of Jesus into the early church, and as the church gets established, there is this transitional stage where God is doing things purposefully so that people can see what's happening. This is not normative. This is not the way it happens today, but this is the way it was happening then. It's clear from the text there was no deficiency in the faith of the Samaritans. They weren't like, you know, half believing or something, nor did they need more of the Spirit in some way. For Luke says he, the Spirit hadn't come at all, really, to them. But there was something odd about this separation and this is why he notes that the Jerusalem church sent down two of its kind of senior apostles to remedy the situation. And so what's going on here? I believe it, it, seems, to, it seems that Jesus was preserving the unity of the church. This is really important. By allowing the guys from Jerusalem 
to see the evidences of the Spirit even in the Samaritans. That's a huge way, so they understand that, because we're going to see this later in Acts as well. We're going to see the Spirit, in, in, as, the, as the gospel goes out into these different people who are not Jewish, God wanted the people who were in the Jerusalem church see that, yes, the Spirit of God and salvation can come to someone who's not Jewish. And that's what's going on here. There was this evidence he wanted them to see. And so I believe God wanted the Jerusalem church to see that others can be brought to Jesus who were not, not Jewish. And that's what's happening here. All right? Sorry. It's parenthetical. I just had to make that comment. Couldn't just pass that by. I had to make that. All right. Verse 18. Now, now Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands. He offered them money. So here, here we're starting to see the real Simon here, right? Um, he's saying, give me this power so that anyone whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. And so here we find what Simon's really after. He, he's after power and influence. He wants the applause. He wants the crowds back. Remember early on in Acts we were studying and we talked about how they arrested Peter and John and the religious leaders got upset. Remember the reason we talked about why they were so upset at them was because they were gaining the crowds, the audience, the applause was moving away, and so they arrested them and tried to persecute them so that they could get the applause back. Simon's got the same heart motive. He has the same situation. He wants, he wants the applause back. He got into Christianity, quote-unquote, because he hoped to use it as a more effective way to rise up and get power over people. He had it. He lost it. He wants it back. Christianity will give it to me, see? And so he had the crowds before the apostles showed up, and now he sees Christianity as a way to get it back. And this is subtle. This is just this is that pride kind of coming out. Um, it's a great warning for us all here, right? We, uh, some in search of approval, appear to convert to Christianity, but they get into it uh, just because they want certain people to approve them or love them. This is a real danger in the church. And this is not always the case, but it's something to always remember, even with young people who grew up in the church, right? This can happen. It isn't, it isn't sometimes so much about, about Jesus as it is about wanting to appease a family member or appease the church who their friends and their family, right, who are around them. And so they come to Christianity because of that influence. We need to be careful that we're coming to Jesus for Jesus' sake and not for the approval of other people. And so here we find um, there was no real salvation uh, in him and that there was no real heart change, no real abandoning of good works for faith in Jesus' work for us. And so this was, a, this was what was happening. And, and church history has this happen all the time. Um, it's teeming with people like Simon who get into Christianity for the sake of using it for their own personal gains. Matter of fact, there's a word uh, called simony. It was actually used. Just Simon with a, a Y put on the end there. Um, it's, uh, it, it was used uh, to, to describe people who try to purchase spiritual positions and influence. Simony. And uh, it actually is what sparked the Reformation back in the 1500s, 16th century. When remember Luther and all that, and in the 95, you know, thesis of the door, Wittenberg, and all that stuff. A lot of that was spurred because the Catholic Church was using indulgences. They were buying, people could pay money to help, um, help get their, you know, shave off some years of purgatory for their loved ones who died type of stuff. And it was kind of like, that was what they were doing. They were simony. They were using money. They were using power over people. And so we, we have to be careful of that today. Same thing. Uh, every time we say things, uh, just so people think we're something special, we practice simony. Every time we serve with an eye open to, to who is watching us, right, so for the applause of others, we're doing the same thing. Every time, we, every time we can read our Bibles, pray, give, fast, in hopes that others will think we're godly, we practice simony, right? It's an act of going about the Christian life and doing things for Jesus, but not for Jesus' sake, but really ultimately it's for our own sake, 
We just want people to approve of us. We want people to like us. Um, it's using Jesus for our own ends. So you see this whole idea is something we can be very uh, much susceptible to. So this version of Christianity, again, is, is popular in our culture. Uh, it's very subtle. It looks the same on the outside, right? You see people going to church. You see people singing songs. You see people opening up their Bibles. They're serving. But it's either all for show or it's for approval. Sometimes it's just for guilt assuaging. I feel better about myself if I go to church, right? I feel like my guilt is assuaged in some way. Or sometimes it's just for power. We need to watch out for these counterfeit Jesuses because we can slowly start to follow them. Verse 20, Peter said to him, this is pretty strong language, right? May your silver perish with you. Um, He doesn't pull any punches here. Peter's dead serious because these counterfeits are really deadly. Simon's not right before God because he still runs his own life. It's really as if Jesus is the co-pilot and he's the pilot here, right? I'm still running my life. I'm glad you're with me, Jesus. I'm glad you can help me when, you need, when I need it, but I'm running my own life. He's using Jesus, or really parts of the real Jesus, for his own selfish ends, no matter how noble they may sound. Now, how did Peter know this? Did you notice that? Like, Peter just says this, and you're like, wow, how did Peter know <laughs> that Simon, Simon's heart here, did the Spirit whisper something in his ear? Like, what happened? How does he know this? And I think it's important that we understand that when Jesus was training the disciples, like Peter, he had warned them about this very thing numerous times. Now listen to what uh, Jesus told Peter to look out for. Chapter 7 of Matthew, he said this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by the fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. There was arrogance. There was a deep sense of, uh, of, of no heart change there in, in the life of Simon. He hadn't been, hadn't been melted by the gospel. His heart was still set on his own works and his own agenda. His treasure was still his status before men. His joy was still how much power he could possess and exert. And he had bought the lie of a counterfeit Jesus. Lastly, Number three, uh, the call to counterfeits, beginning in verse 22. Peter's call is pretty clear. It's to repent. It's to turn from this kind of me-centered, works-based, people-pleasing, Jesus-using life to a Jesus-centered, faith-based, grace-accepting, Jesus-glorifying life. And it's essential to turn to the real Jesus of the Bible instead of one of our own makings. Look at verse 24. Simon answered, pray for me that uh, nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, this, this may sound noble and heartfelt, but I don't believe it is. He's asking Peter to do something for him that really he has to do for himself. Simon has to cast aside this kind of heart motive of wanting to use Jesus for his own purposes, this counterfeit he's, he's made. You realize that you must respond to Jesus. You must look at the cross. You must plead with Jesus to open your eyes that you might really see the Jesus of the Bible and not just some cultural manufactured Jesus that is proposed around us. The Jesus of the Bible, understand this, is not someone you try to get on your side and use. He's not a religion. He's not a service. He's not even a church. The Jesus of the Bible is not on a political agenda. He's not a divine genie. And he's surely not someone you can just inherit uh, because of your family or parents or where you go to church. He doesn't come by osmosis, right? 
you must turn to Jesus yourself. Simon, like everyone, is a religious man. With money, he's asking for something he can do, a price that he can pay, a formula he can recite that will place God in his debt and obligate God to do his will. But that's not how the Jesus of the Bible rolls, my friends. That's not how it works. The Jesus of the Bible can't be bought, sold, traded, or used. Matter of fact, he tells us to, when he says they want to come to him, take up a cross and follow him. Right, look what he says in Matthew 8. This is, this is a good summary of Matthew 8. Jesus saw a crowd around him. He gave orders to go over to the other side, and a scribe came up to him and said to him, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Well, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, it's going to cost you something. You, you sure you want to follow I me? Mean, it makes you understand that you follow me. This is not going to be comfortable. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. That, wow, that seems strong language, right? And so what Jesus is saying is, follow him, right? not yourself. It won't be easy, it won't be safe. There's not a lot of accolades, a lot of applause, a lot of power to gain from following Jesus. And then he's telling this last guy to stop making excuses, this guy had some real creative excuses. The, the situation probably was that his father hadn't, hadn't died yet. He's telling him that he wants to hang out until his dad dies so he gets, inherit, gets the inheritance, gets the money, and then I'll follow you. I'll have my security. I'll be set up. I'll be good to go, Jesus. I'll follow you as soon as I get my life in order and I've got all my, you know, my funds set aside so I can, be, I can follow you. And Jesus says, you need to follow me now. You need to, you need to abandon everything and follow me. And this makes the Jesus of the Bible honestly pretty scary if we're honest, right? Pretty scary. If it's all of grace, and it is, and nothing of our own doing, which it is, if I have no part in my salvation, in other words, I don't contribute anything to the deal here, I have no part in earning favor with God, you know what that means? That means you have zero leverage with God. Zero. <laughs> you can't leverage him. You can't tell him, I did this, and I, did, I contributed this, so therefore you owe me. If it's all of grace, we have no leverage, right? He doesn't owe me anything. He doesn't owe me safety. He doesn't owe me comfort. He doesn't owe me the good life. If Jesus paid it all, as the hymn goes, then all to him what? I owe. I have no leverage. <laughs> That's what makes the Jesus of the Bible really scary in many ways, the Jesus of the culture that gets proposed has all kinds of ways you can earn favor and, and use and, and gain, and that's not how it works. But this is good news, right? Uh, this is actually good news. It means that anyone can be saved. Anyone can come to the Jesus of the Bible no matter, no matter where you are in life or what you may have made a, made a mess of it. The gospel is the good news of rescue for the penniless, the helpless, the hopeless, who can neither pay their benefactor in advance nor repay with kindness with our gratitude. God's gift unmasks our pretensions to independence, our delusions that we can bargain or barter with the Lord of the universe because it's just that, a gift. It's a gift. He had everything, gave up everything, right? He gave up, look at how Paul put this in 2 Corinthians 8 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, he had everything. He, was, he's, he is God. He was in heaven he had everything, the adoration of angels and all of those things. Yet for your sake, yours, he became poor, right? He took on human flesh. He died so that by his poverty, by his giving up everything, you might become rich. 
The solution to our pride is to see his poverty. What Simon didn't see, um, you get the chance to see this morning. That Jesus was crucified for you so that you can come to him, uh, you can come to him with hands, not with hands full, but with hands empty, right? You come to him on your face to worship him. That's the Jesus of the Bible. Listen to how Isaiah 55 puts it. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And at the end of the Bible, Revelation 22, a very similar statement. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. That's the gospel, without price. But it means, it means you get no leverage with God. It means you can't tell him what, what you want him to do with your life. You have to surrender all to him. So as we transition here to communion, Pastor Eddie's gonna come up in just a moment and kind of lead us through this together uh, as we take communion. So don't open or take your little cups there just yet. We're gonna do it together as a church uh, family. Um, I want you to consider in these moments between, before he comes up here, uh, this, whole, this whole idea, right? Um, how is it that, let's just make this personal because I know we talked about being on mission and watching out for these kind of counterfeits out there. How have these counterfeits, these pieces of the Jesus of pop culture kind of subtly crept into your own life? How have you begun to, to think that God owes you something? How have you maybe begun to use Jesus for your own personal gains, right? For your own personal approval of others. And let's take a moment to confess those things to God and turn to him. If you don't know Jesus, this communion time is not for you, but we would love for you to talk to you. You can cry out to Jesus right where you are and talk to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be together. Um, thank you for this passage. It's a, um, it's a difficult one, and yet it's one that's really necessary for us to look at because, God, we live in a very similar culture uh, to what they live in. We're surrounded by people who use Christianity for their own personal gains, who use the name of Jesus to, to advance their causes, um, use it for power plays, use it for applause or approval. God, we don't, we don't come to you and tell you what to do for us. We don't come to you and have any leverage with you. We come to you because it's all of grace, and it means we owe everything to you, and you owe nothing to us. God, help us to see that this morning. Grant us humility to see that. Um, squash the pride that rises up within us to want to make those, um, to use you in those ways. Forgive us of that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.